Hey everyone, Josh here. I'm always a little bit nervous when there's some technological difficulties. Not really because uh, I'm scared about the technology, but people are like, oh, this word's gonna be great. So we'll see what the Lord does. Um, God, I just pray that you would be here. Help us learn more about your way and the way of Jesus. Amen. Two people are fighting outside your apartment complex. Everyone's on the balcony because of the noise. Some immediately go back inside, seeing it's just a fight and nothing more. Some stay outside, uh, distracted on their phones, maybe with some existing conversations, but glancing at the violence from time to time. Some are filming, hoping to catch something for a world star, TMZ, or their Facebook Live audience. And some are horrified as it gets increasingly violent. Their eyes don't turn away, but their feet don't move. Then there's you. You don't want to go back inside and just act like something never happened. But you also don't want to stand on a balcony when people are getting pummeled and who's no, who knows what will happen if someone calls the police. You've now worked up a bit of sweat in your anxiety, but you still haven't moved. You reach for your phone. Maybe filming will help. That seems a bit silly to you. Finally, your arms wave in the air almost involuntarily. No one notices. You yell. No one hears. The scene continues as you see you're moving down the fire escape. You're unsure why. Your feet are on the pavement. You're still confused. Now you're shoving both people, your arms out, shouting, stop punching each other. From the corner of your eye, you see your friend and neighbor coming to help. From the other corner, a woman you've never met before in a similar posture to support you. That's the last thing you remember before you get clocked. You wake up. Your neighbor has a pack of frozen peas she's putting on your forehead. You move too fast and you feel the pain. Well, at least the punch wasn't meant for you. You ask what she means. She repeats that the punch that has you feeling some kind of way was meant for the other person. But you, interrupting and slowing things down, a siren from a nearby fire engine scared folk, and some more neighbors on the ground finally came through and they broke up the fight. Someone was trying to say they won a card game when they actually lost, and things blew up from there. Frozen when I saw you move, and then I followed you. Welcome to the life of nonviolence. Nonviolence, it isn't inaction. Nonviolence, it is not just simply staying away from conflict. Nonviolence, it isn't a moralistic or clean record of never killing, never harming, never shoving. Nonviolence, it doesn't stay on a far removed balcony performing the high ground. And nonviolence, it's not smooth talking cowardice. Nonviolence instead is aggressive, thorough, aware of emotion, spiritually grounded, full of compassion, full of love, and yet it's against evil within and without. Some who, someone who went inside from the balcony early on in the fight might have been most untouched by the scenes and sounds of the violence, certainly the one that's most physically removed from the conflict. That's not nonviolence, though. That's distraction, ignorance, unfeeling, and cowardice. But you, you who went down, seized by some kind of care, got your body in between the violence, inspired some of your neighbors to disrupt the violence with you before it could foment, and took a hit. 
you're demonstrating nonviolence. But now let's make things harder. What if the punch was meant for you? These questions and more are what we're going to be talking about in this series. Nonviolence, how to seek peace and pursue it at home, at work, and on the streets. And what a time to be in this series. This is our first series of 2021, our first series after Advent, the season where we celebrate Jesus coming down from his heavenly balcony to the violence of this earth in the form of an innocent little baby. And yet this incarnation that God does through Jesus, even as an infant, already threatened the tyranny of Jesus' day. Enough that one leader, Herod, killed all boys two and under in fear of losing his own crown. Some in the church call these little ones the first martyrs of our faith. The first ones in a long line of people who would die because of Jesus' call to bring peace into conflict. Is this the legacy of our faith, this costly nonviolence, or do we too seek the crown? The crown of political power. Do we turn Jesus from a nonviolent revolutionary hero who loves the poor and marginalized into a craven, power-hungry leader who wants to rule state power while blasting worship songs in the background. That's the reason we saw the cross, a Jesus saves sign, Jesus 2020 sign alongside a noose and Confederate flag at the insurrection of the Capitol on Wednesday. Whether it was those disturbing symbols or a burning cross on a lawn, the picture you see is one of MLK and his son finding a burning cross. It was just one of many used to terrorize them. Or perhaps let's go back a little bit earlier. Slave ships named Hope or the good ship Jesus. True names of the ships that brought humans, captured humans. What we saw on Wednesday is not newly frightening. It's an old American horror story that has its roots here, but also all over the world and all over history. The enemy has always put a Christian crown next to halls of power influence, and war. Some of us fall for it. Many of us don't stop it. There's a reason why. Do we, too, seek the crown? The crown of personal lordship. Do we make Jesus so personal that no one could be offended that we worship him? That Jesus does whatever we make him to? That we always end up somehow safe and comfortable, even though Jesus was neither? Do we silence the speech of Jesus by avoiding the words he actually said? Whether our temptation is for Jesus to be our personal king or the king of a political party or another crown not meant for us for the sake of life. That's our invitation to lean into what Jesus has to say about nonviolence. Now I get it. Others have sullied this message of bringing peace to conflict. For the last 20 or so years, I've been agitated by people who use Jesus' message of forgiveness, or let's say MLK's message of nonviolence, to blunt anger that needs to be expressed, to stall mobilization that's long overdue, and to stew deep moralistic shame for any inclination we may have in our hearts towards violence. Those voices often want nonviolence to mean inaction. Do not 
fall for it. Listen to these words carefully. If your enemy says to be nonviolent, at best, be skeptical. But Jesus is not our enemy. He is our friend. And his words, deed, they're invitations for us, for all of us to a nonviolent life. One where we're allowed to be angry, to be emotional, to be against evil, to be organized for change, and yet one where we never kill physically. And as we become more and more disciples of Jesus, never kill in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, with our words. This is hard, but it's a choice we have that can free us and make us more powerful and free than we could ever imagine. After all, Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That one is the one who speaks to us in love, dies for us in love, and guides us as we fail and fall and fumble forward following him in everything. As we move to look at the words of Jesus in Scripture, I want to remind us that these simple words we're about to hear from Jesus' life are what convinced Gandhi that the principle of ahimsa, do not harm, could be embodied. These words are what convinced black women and black men who were leading local fights to register to vote far afield from anyone that we might know in the civil rights movement, to actually invite those same people and those organizations to come closer to their towns and cities, knowing it was going to bring violence with them. These words from Jesus invite a nonviolent revolution into any conflict, at home, at work, and on the streets. They are like words of dynamite. Are you ready to listen to them? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray right now that wherever we are, whatever's going on in our lives, you would pierce through it with this message from you. No matter what we think about this topic, how it makes us feel right now, we just pray that we'd be open to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, in, his, in one of his most famous messages, the Sermon on the Mount says this, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The words of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, one of his first words to our crowd, his first words to followers and strangers alike. Like in other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking an ordinary common sense saying, love your neighbors, those close to you, and hate your enemies. And then Jesus, the new normal for a Jesus follower. This isn't advanced Jesus following. This is following Jesus 101. When we love only our neighbor and hate our enemies, we are still orphans searching for and clinging to factions who will accept us through performance, through creed, through skin color. Our Father in heaven and our enemies' Father in heaven. 
our loving parent that sends sun and rain to us all. That is incredibly unexciting for an increasingly divisive culture that doesn't want bad people, however you define bad, to experience the light of the sun or the refreshment of the rain. And yet it's plainly what Jesus teaches. In our culture, this is a hard word, a boring word, a word that can even seem unjust. Perhaps it's all of those things because Jesus' words remain that, just words that are read or read over, not lives that are lived. Notice that Jesus never says, love your enemy and remain afraid of them. Or, love your enemy, so just give them a nonviolent, of course, nonviolent, right? Slap on the wrist for their wrongdoing, but really, it's okay. Or, love your enemy, so stay out of conflict. Actively loving and praying for your enemy while resisting their evil looks like something. And I think nonviolence is at the core of it. Nonviolence at the end of the day is a way to worship and respect God who created you and your enemy. It's a way to let your love be strong and not just before those who like you and those who look like you. Nonviolence is a way to love people even as you believe in your ability to be transformed. Maybe not right now, maybe not by you, but someday, somewhere. Nonviolence takes away the finality of harming someone who is still in process, like all of us are still in process. You don't hurt them fatally, but your nonviolent actions reveal your opponent's potential for harm. They expose the danger of the evil at work, and they dramatize and amplify the very real suffering they're causing. This allows others to stand against the wrongdoing with you, alongside you, and work to end it. And yet these people, these opponents, are not harmed. But hopefully the structures are. The work of our love exposes and reveals. It doesn't kill people, but it destroys unjust systems and ways of being. As we practice these words, it can be revolutionary. Diane Nash was a 20-year-old black female student in 1960. She grew up in a devout Catholic family, and that faith was nurtured, and she became that way herself as an adult. Even though she had experienced racism in the North, she never had experienced the Jim Crow South. And so when she went to Fisk in Nashville, she experienced things she had never seen before. Signs that said, colored only. The lunch hour, black folk were just in the alleyway eating their lunch because the restaurants were not open to them. These things embarrassed her. They made her feel ashamed. She says this, when I obeyed segregation rule that I was too inferior to go through the front doors or into certain restaurants. It turns out that passively agreeing with uh, injustice did something to her. Even though she did not agree, it was a kind of worship, a worship that made her feel weak, embarrassed, and ashamed. She didn't like it, but she didn't know what to do about it. That same year, she met James Lawson, who was a pastor in the area. He had just come back from India and had met Gandhi, Gandhi's followers, and had learned about the nonviolent movement. He said, I'm going to come back I'm going to teach people about this, kind of in like a fervor. He was crazy about it because he just thought there's something God was doing here. And so he just started weekly teachings. And Diane Nash went as a young 20-something woman. He taught why nonviolence has power. And Diane, even though she was reluctant at first, ended up feeling like, I think this might be true. I think I might agree with this. Diane's feeling about nonviolence was that it gave her dignity. And it gave others dignity too, even if they didn't deserve it. 
And it also gave her permission not to be segregated anymore. And it forced a choice for her white counterparts. Kill her or desegregate. She went from powerless to powerful overnight. Because she said, that life that I used to live, feeling the way I did, that's over. But it's not because I'm going to kill something or someone. It's because I'm choosing a different path. And I'm going to be active about that. She simply had to become willing to die or be harmed. Something that her faith already taught her in theory and something that could happen anyway in the racist South. She took the risk. And her life, Nashville, America, and the world was never the same. That's not hyperbole. It's true. If you know the life of Diane Nash, you know this is true. It was not only her that found dignity and self-determination through nonviolence. It was countless others that all of a sudden got agency and a way to dignify themselves and dignify others and see the possibilities for real change through love. It's important to name that they didn't attend just one march or five or 15 or 50. This was a nonviolent campaign that organized internally, that taught one another the principles of love for themselves and love for the other. Love for their enemies. They sang freedom songs all the time to Jesus and loved doing that. They resisted racism as a whole through their very existence as free black people. But they also organized to combat the specific ways racism was rearing its head. How does that compare to now? As we've seen since last May when George Floyd was murdered, marches spike and then they fade. We asked the question, what will happen 50 days later? And we saw it together. Things were essentially back to normal. There were new names new deaths, and the same relative inaction, regardless of what your Facebook post was, your Facebook status, and even your words to close friends. Inaction looked like, at least, the name of the game. What happens when you don't march once or twice or three times, but when you adopt nonviolence as a lifestyle, at home, at work, and on the streets? That's what we'll be talking about in this series. One of the inspirations of doing this is learning that God is a God of peace, and that our world has a lot of negative peace. Now, what do I mean by negative peace? It's when you realize that people aren't being violent out on the streets every day, but that there are conditions ripe for oppression, ripe for injustice, ripe for violence, and ripe for war every day that make the air thick with a negative peace, even when it might look like a quiet and beautiful day. Jesus lived a life against negative peace. That's why he says this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This sword, he says, will divide people against one another, even people in the same household, because Jesus requires full allegiance, even beyond familial, and of course tribal and national. Jesus finishes by saying this. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Despite this beautiful picture you're about to see of Selma, Alabama, there was a lot of negative peace in that city in the mid-20th century. Even though black folk had the constitutional right to vote, only 300 people have been able to register when the whole population of the city was 50% African-American. A church-going black woman named Amelia Boynton was one of those 300. Somehow, she had found a way, and she was able to register to vote. But she wasn't settled with her own right 
with her own ability to do that. She saw the negative piece in her community, that they could not participate in the democratic process. They could not elect their own leaders. They could not become jurors and have a say in matters of justice. And that as they tried to register to vote, thousands upon thousands of them were arrested unjustly. Of course, these arrests took place in a nearly all-white legal system. This injustice did not make the sun shine any less in Selma or the rain fall any less, but the air was thick with negative peace. Amelia Boynton was one of the many ordinary black folk who was leading on the ground, who called folks like Diane Nash, MLK, and John Lewis to bring their way of nonviolence into their towns, knowing that it would bring conflict, knowing that it would bring violence, and knowing that it would probably bring even death. If you know the story, it did. But it was all to destroy a negative peace and to expose the injustice that was there. They felt like what they would be able to see in Selma and what the nation could see in Selma would move our nation. It would put a mirror up to our nation that we could see ourselves and we could help our nation change through the help of God. These are people who organized around commitment instead of waiting for a crisis. These are people who saw the negative peace was already crisis enough. So they took their commitment, and in the words of Psalm 34, they departed from evil. They did good. They sought peace and pursued it. But crisis can always come soon enough. On September 15, 1963, a bomb exploded in Birmingham, Alabama at the Sunday school hour, and four little girls were murdered. More were injured. The nation reeled. All that negative peace had finally exploded onto the front page of the newspapers of America. Four girls trying to learn about Jesus, the ways of God, dead in their own church. Here's what it meant for Diane Nash to have a pre-existing commitment to nonviolence when that happened. Her words might surprise you. The day four little girls were murdered in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, my husband at the time, James Bevel, and I were in Edenton, North Carolina. FCLC had a voter registration project going on there. It was a Sunday, and he came into the living room and told me about the murder of these little girls. We were both crying, really, and we decided that an adult man and woman could not allow four little girls to be murdered and do nothing about it. We felt confident that if we tried, we could find out who had done that crime and make certain that they, they were killed. We felt that that was one option that we had. Option two was that we get the right to vote for blacks in Alabama. And in that way, they could better protect their children. So we made a conscious decision and we chose option two to get the right to vote and made a promise to ourselves, to each other, 
and to God that no matter how long it took us, we were going to work on getting the right to vote. One thing that's not widely understood is that the murder of those little girls was horrible. And the only thing that would have been more horrible would have been if nothing positive came out of it. But the fact is that the right to vote for Southern blacks is a direct result of their deaths. That afternoon, he and I drafted the original strategy for what became the Selma right to vote movement. These are nonviolent people. Nash, a devout Catholic, and James Bevel, a pastor. And they're angry. They considered a plan where they could kill the person who did this violence. But they thought about it. They prayed about it. There wasn't a conservative commentator saying over them, no, be nonviolent. That's what you have to do. This was kind of before that trick was learned and practiced. They said there's a way to honor the spilled blood of these four girls, and it's not by spilling more blood. It's awakening the soul of a nation so justice through laws and through a process of soul searching and repentance can come about. That's true courage. That is peace getting closer to conflict no matter the cost. They did that sacred work together as a married couple, and then they walked that out. The plans that they wrote up that they were talking about at the end, those are the plans that have changed the nation. It's why there's certain laws in place right now. And as I begin to conclude, I want to tell one more story from this movement and then read one more scripture. You may wonder, where were the white people and the other non-black people? Right now, I've told a story really of the black community, the black church community, and what they were doing, including people that weren't really church people, but then this movement brought them into the life of the church. You could wonder, is nonviolence only for black folk to embrace a kind of dignity that makes them powerful without resorting to the same ugly tools of their oppressor? First, make no mistake, Jesus' message about nonviolence was not advanced Jesus following, like I said earlier. It was a basic introductory message to a new way of experiencing God's kingdom. He shared it first with folks who were oppressed living under occupied Palestine. It's a hard message, but the truth is this. Not many thought that their odds of a violent overthrow of Rome were good. But this message wasn't just for oppressed Jewish folk, even though Jesus centered his ministry in their communities. But nonviolence is the word for all. And yet it's much tougher for the Roman centurion to give up their armor, their weapons, their newly developed feelings of safety, to love their enemy through nonviolence. There's simply so much to lose. And yet, Jesus says it's how you gain him. One of the biggest differences between the 1960s and now is not less black people dying, sadly and truthfully. One of the more objective differences is that some white folk now care about that reality. Again, the biggest difference between the funeral and demonstrations of uh, a person like Emmett Till, a boy whose face and body was mutilated because he allegedly looked at a white girl in the South, and George Floyd murdered for a counterfeit $20 bill last May, is that Emmett's support was almost entirely black, and that George Floyd had almost all white crowds in a state like Nebraska shouting his name, and then a multiracial coalition 
around the world. But my question is the same one that Diane Nash asks even right now. She's still alive. She was at Yale, uh, right across the street from me in 2017. Was that a march, what we saw in May, or a commitment to a movement? Was it a temporary display of passion by people actually unrooted to a deeper cause, specifically the cause of nonviolence? Tomorrow I'm going to have a conversation with Patrick about the multi-ethnic church facilitated by Daniqua. And one of the things I'm eager to talk about is the commitment all of us, and especially white folk, must have in order to truly love their neighbor in a multi-ethnic setting. There's a story that's become so meaningful to me uh, that I tell a lot now. And it's a, a, about a white woman named Viola Lozo who had this commitment. I had the privilege of hearing her daughter, Mary, tell this story within this last year in a training on nonviolence. Mary said that her mom was deeply disturbed at the visuals that were broadcast surrounding Emmett Till's death. This was one of the first times where people saw uh, an open casket and to see a victim of lynching, and it went all throughout the nation. These were often in black newspapers, but this time it went uh, kind of viral to, to more people. She made the decision, Viola, to tell her young children, including Mary, about it. The kids were young, but she said, I don't know if I can just be a parent and not share what's going on. The family was horrified, but they didn't know what to do. Then came Bloody Sunday, which happened in Selma, Alabama, when Amelia Boynton, Diane Nash, John Lewis, and many others were struck and beaten on Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, which is what our series graphic displays. MLK the next day made a call to clergy and a call to people of conscience to come to Selma and join them. Viola knew that she had to act. She knew, like the nation did, that MLK led a movement, a nonviolent movement. She had seen Emmett Till's face. She knew there was a risk to her. She left her daughter, Mary. It would be the last time that she saw her. She left her other children. She left her husband in Detroit to go down south to Selma. She didn't go to Selma for a degree. She didn't go to Selma for a fellowship, for an internship. She went to Selma to serve. Mostly what she did was cook, clean, watch people's kids, and give rides. That was her work of service. Almost always to black folks, something that would have been unthinkable at the time. That march and movement continued. There was another march that MLK did where he stopped on the bridge and then went back. There was a legal fight where they were fighting legally for the right to do that march. It was going to be from Selma to Montgomery, 54 miles. And finally, they got the right to do it, and they, they went on. And MLK gave this speech at the Capitol that was all about the work of nonviolence and what the hope was for a new kind of South, a new kind of America that would see the dignity, the God impression that we're all created in God's image. That would be a new thing that would kind of waken up the conscience of America. Four hours after MLK gave that speech, Viola was on her way to give another person a ride home, a young black man. The KKK was right behind her. They pulled up next to her car and they saw a young white woman riding with a black man without Viola's husband there, without Viola's children there. KKK didn't like what they saw. They pulled up their gun and they shot at her and she died instantly. The car veered off, but the KKK didn't stop. They had done their work. When they looked at both bodies, Viola's and this young black man, they saw blood and they said, our job's done and they left. What they didn't know was this young man named Leroy was still alive. Viola's blood had covered him. It wasn't his blood, but it was her blood that was on him. And he was spared. 
because of this blood that wasn't his own and because of a commitment to serve. Viola didn't give speeches. She didn't start an organization. She didn't have a nonprofit. She just said, there's something I need to do. I need to go and actually move my feet to do it. She served. She didn't know that she would become a martyr or a hero. But that's the cost of actually choosing to serve others. Sometimes you don't know what will happen. There's a reason why these stories move us. Why the story of Diane Nash and James Melville giving up their manhunt for one for the sake of awakening the soul of millions moves us. Why the story of Viola's blood speaking a better word than American racism moves us. Why the story of a mutilated boy named Emmett Till inspiring a generation to fight like never before moves us. Why this death of four little girls in a Birmingham church could change our nation. There was a sermon that was supposed to be given that same day called A Love That Never, A Love That Forgives. That sermon was never given because of what happened. But that sermon was lived out in the actions of ordinary women and men. It's because their sacrificial lives and courageous decisions to fight with love for the other, even as the other killed or tried to kill them, is anchored in a time that's here, but not yet fully here. That's at hand, but not fully come into our world. This otherworldly love resounds throughout history, offering courage to us, to anyone interested in dying to self to gain life, picking up a sword to cut through negative peace, and defeating very real hate with a non-sentimental and powerful love. The words of Micah speak to this world that is to come. Micah chapter 4, it says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths, The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them feel afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken." All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord for God, our God, forever and ever. These words from a Hebrew prophet, thousands of years before Jesus' simple words, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. But they all bring us towards this incredible vision of a new world that is coming. This is the beginning of our series. There's a lot more to talk about. Direct words from Jesus that are meant to invite us deeper as we go forward together a vision of what's to come at the end of all things. But how do we get there? And how do we make that not something on the streets when crisis or commitment come outside, but how do we make it something personal at home, at work? The very work of the here and now that we can either grasp onto or ignore. People are fighting outside your apartment complex. Everyone's on the balcony because of the noise. Then there's you. What are you willing to do? Before I give you further ways to respond for today in our service, I want to invite you to, three, to four simple postures. The first is to reflect. This is a heavy word, and I hope you've been able to listen to it. I hope you've been able to, uh, to kind of follow along with it. But I want to ask you, where are you drawn in? Where do you recoil? Think about how this experience works for you at home and at work and on the streets. Where is there conflict so you can know 
what God might be saying and doing in you. Name your questions. I know we have a lot of questions about this message of nonviolence. Practical, theoretical, there's so much that we could inquire about. We're doing a, a workshop series starting this Thursday at 8.15, How to Become a Peacemaker. I hope to take some of the questions then and work through together. But actually take those questions to God and to one another. And then commit in whatever way you feel the Spirit asking you to commit today. It might be to, hey, listen to this sermon again. Or to listen uh, to our Sunday series uh, moving forward. To go to the How to Become a Peacemaker workshop. Or to even ask God five minutes a day. Just give me your peace. But ask God what that commitment should be. He knows. And the last thing is to embody the commitment. We have something that we're uh, kind of scheming up as a staff at ECV, and we need your help. Remember how I said that walk was 54 miles from Selma to Montgomery? We actually want to make our commitment plain, make it with our bodies. Even as we're not sure yet, maybe some of us, what would nonviolent even look like for me? We want us to walk that out. And so we're actually going to invite you to join us on a journey. We're not going to walk 54 miles at once, and neither did they. But we're going to actually take time from now to the end of the series, to walk what will hopefully be a collective 54 miles, to embody this commitment, to actually put it in our physical movement. And we hope that you'll join us for that. There'll be more information this week on how we'll do that. And if you have some curiosity or hope for that, please email us, email me at joshelmcityvineyard.org. We'd love for you to help us lead that time. Now I want to just give us three ways to respond as we transition to the rest of our service. The first is going to be taking communion. Taking communion is a way for us to embody the story of Jesus. If you have your elements, the bread and the juice, you can take those in. Those are ways that we acknowledge that Jesus died for us. And he said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's a nonviolent way that Jesus practiced. That's how we can actually become followers of him. We say often in communion, if you're a follower of Jesus or if you want to become a follower of Jesus, then take communion. The second invitation is this, to actually become a follower of Jesus. If you are not already, or if you uh, maybe had a Christian commitment at one time, but you say, I want to orient my life again to to follow Jesus. I want to invite you specifically today to make that commitment. At the abolitionist movement, the movement that was to free enslaved people, they had something that they developed called an altar call, which was to say, hey, come on down, raise your hand. And what they did is they actually said, come to Jesus, and as you come, we want to get your name. Because if you're following Jesus and still owning people as enslaved folks, that's not going to work out. So when you write down your name, you're committing to a whole different way. What would it mean for you to do that today? To come down. You can come down to 425 College. We're here. We'll pray for you. But in whatever way you can, come down in your heart and to say, there's a way of white supremacy that I want to rid myself from. There's a way of inaction and just saying I'm about something that I really am not actually about at the end of the day. And I want to turn from that. What does it mean to come down to actually write your name in that book and say, you know what? I'm done with that. I want to become a follower of Jesus. I'd love to talk to anyone that's willing to make that decision. Again, email is josh at elmcityvineyard.org. Email me about that. Come down to 425 College Street right now. We'll be here. And the last invitation is to worship God. When we worship God alone, God comes through his Holy Spirit. We don't worship any other crown, but instead we lay down our own and give it to the rightful king. God, I pray that you would be in these words, you would be in this time, and what will follow. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.